Join me in uh, the book of Second uh, Samuel. Please join me in the book of Second Samuel as we continue our uh, second installment in this uh, little short series we're going to be taking through uh, the book of Samuel. So today we'll be in um, chapter 2. And please join me there as we read God's holy word. Samuel chapter 2 reads, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and the Lord brings to life, and he brings down to Sheol and he rises, raises up. The Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the, pillar of the, for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men, and they did not know the Lord. The custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling and with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. And all that the fork brought out, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the man sacrificing, Give me meat for my priest to roast, for he, would, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And the man said to him, let them burn the fat first, and let them take as much, then let them take as much as you wish. He would say, no, you must give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord grant you children by this woman for the petition she asks of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord." Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear from the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of the Pharaohs? Did I choose him out of the tribes of, the, of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense? To wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. 
Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father shall go, um, shall go in and come up before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me for those who honor me, I will honor and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eyes on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be a man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out and to grieve out his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this shall come upon you, Hophni and Phinehas shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die in the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to him to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and say, Please put me in one of the priest's place that I may eat a morsel of bread. May God bless the reading of his word. And let's turn to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come again um, to you this morning as a congregation. We come boldly before your throne because of the work your Son did on the cross. And so, Father, we ask even this morning that, that you will open our eyes to your truth, that you will help us to see the, the glory of of your word, we ask that you open our eyes, open our ears to hear, open our hearts, that we might receive your word. And we pray these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Uh, just a, a few weeks ago, I was um, doing a search in one of the one of those um, concordances, and I was I was trying to figure out how many questions there are in the Bible. And so um, I thought that was a good search. And so I thought, you know, the best way to figure out how many questions are is just to like search to see how many question marks. There are in the Bible, and I don't know if any of you guys have ever done this search before, but I was I was astonished when I got my result. So I, I searched the question mark, I hit enter, and then popped up like thousands of of hits, and I was excited. So I was like, okay, and I was going to read through all of the questions throughout the whole Bible, and I was I was I was confused because the first one said Jesus. And then the, the next, so I was like, oh, that's weird. And I, I read to the end, I'm like, there's no question mark. So I went to the next one, and that one said Jesus too, but there was no question mark in it. And so I went to the third one, and there was no question mark. It was just Jesus. And so apparently, when in this concordance, you search for a question mark, the answer is Jesus. <laughs> now, um, I never did figure out how many questions there are in the Bible, um, or question marks there are, but I'm sure um, someday I'll figure that out. But as we, as we look here at the book of Samuel, uh, we're seeing this wonderful transition that's happening in Israel. The people of Israel have been brought out of Egypt. They've been ransomed. They've been brought into their promised land. They've lived under the judges, and now it's time to install a king. And Samuel presides over this transition from this, this loose confederation of, of tribes into a monarchy under the direct rule of God. And so as, as we're going through this transition, all of these things eventually point to the ultimate answer, the ultimate king, which is Christ. And so in the pages of, of Samuel, I, I hope you forgive me, there are, there are sure there are question marks, but we'll see, we'll see the imprints of Jesus all over this book. And so as we, as we looked last week, um, Ben, um, Abrahamson, talked about how God uses trials to humble us so that he can graciously give us himself. And this morning, as we look at chapter 2, we're going to consider how God, um, how God uses our circumstances to humble us so he can graciously give us his son. And so as we look in this passage, as you'll see that it was kind of the first section was a prayer, and we'll look at that first. And so the first section we're going to consider today is uh, verses 1 through 10, and this is called the picture of God. And before we look at this picture of God, 
we need to kind of remind ourselves of what's going on here. You remember back to last week, and, and you'll see that this prayer comes from last week, the circumstances of last week. And so, as you remember, we find Hannah, who was the wife of a, of a wealthy man. She had been unable to bear children. Even though her husband Elkanah loved her very much, he, he brought on a second wife to bear some children. And some would suggest that the reason for the second marriage was to produce offspring, the offspring that Hannah could not. And so, though some people might say that Hannah's infertility could be cured by a simple medical procedure, the text tells us that it was the Lord who closed her womb. And we see in this passage in chapter 1 that Hannah's rival, Penina, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And it went on year after year that her rival provoked her as they went up to the house of the Lord, so much so that Hannah could not even partake in the festival and the feasting there. She would not eat. And the text tells us that this was a situation that went on for years. It happened for a long time. And in her great distress, Hannah turned to the Lord. And her prayers bore out out the deep anguish of a thousand tears. And they reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And the Lord remembered Hannah. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. It's interesting to note that while it might seem that God remembered, Hannah might suggest that God has forgotten her or he lost track of her, or that he was distracted by an urgent matter elsewhere. The idea of God remembering is used throughout Scripture to show how the Lord responds to his people in their times of great distress. We can see that in Genesis 30. God remembered Rachel when she was barren, and God listened to her and opened her womb. When calling Moses to arise and go to Pharaoh in Exodus 6, Yahweh, the Lord, speaks and he says, I am, says, I have heard the groaning of my people Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenants. And as God remembered these two prayers, the implications had great, great significance. And in the same way, as God remembers Hannah, the, her personal, he sees her personal anguish. And, and the answer to her prayers has far-reaching implications in God's plan of redemption. So as we get to chapter 2, Hannah has been waiting for three years to wean her child before she brings him back and gives him to the Lord. And so as you think about this, this is the, the prized son, the, the son of her barrenness, the, the wonderful gift that God has given to her. And now, after three years, she's giving him back as a sacrifice to the Lord. It says she's going to lend him to the Lord for the rest of his life. I can't help but think about my own heart and and maybe you feel this way as well, as when God gives me a good gift, oftentimes I choose to hang on to it. But Hannah here, open-handed, hands her gift back to the Lord. And it's as she is handing back her son to the Lord, this, the, the thing she has desired for so long, she is giving him back to the Lord, she prays this prayer that we read moments ago. And let me just, let's just walk through the prayer uh, briefly, starting in verse 1. Her prayer begins with her personal experience. And we can see that her joy and confidence in the Lord, as she exalts in the Lord, first her praises begin with an inward understanding of the experience of God. She experienced a great distress of her soul, and there it was that the Lord comforted her and gave her peace. Then, it then moves on to her strength. Her strength is then exalted in the Lord. And, and the term, the horn is often used as a symbol of strength, and that's a word that can be substituted there. You can probably see that in your notes. And it's because the horn was, was the chief weapon and ornament of those animals who possessed them. And so it's a fitting symbol for her. And so uh, as her, it comes out of her mouth, it comes out of her, the abundance of her Strength and now out of the abundance of her heart, her mouth speaks and rejoices in the great salvation that the Lord has wrought. Well, moving from her personal experience in, in verse 1, 
we, we then look to verses 2 and 3, and we see how she praises God's character. She, she begins by saying, There is none holy like the Lord. There is no one beside him. There is no rock like our God. And it's from her personal experiences that her theology has grown so deep. And, these, and the, because these traits that Hannah gives, she gives, also gives a warning to her readers. And it's in verse 3. She says this, The Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. This statement about the Lord should be recalled frequently as we go through the book of Samuel. Guides our understanding of how and why God is dealing with every character in this story. The truth is repeated to Samuel um, as as he was sent to anoint uh, the next king of of Israel. Remember, he was sent to Jesse's home, and Jesse brought out his sons. And as Samuel looks over all of David's son or all of Jesse's sons, he sees like he sees these gigantic people. And and Samuel looks, and the Lord says this to Samuel. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height or his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so Hannah can take confidence and refuge in her rock, resting in his goodness and his justice and his strength, because he doesn't see the outward, he sees all the way Inward, and he, is, he has the strength to bring about his justice. Hannah then moves on in verses 4 through 8 to give a series of contrasts that illuminate how the Lord is working out this judgment in the world. Not just in, her own experience, not just in her own experience, but we'll see this in the experience of the people around him. These reversals can be seen as the result of God's justice played out. Over time, and as we look at the themes, you can you can skim through there, and you can see that the, there's the there's the mighty and the feeble in verse four. There's the fool and there's the hungry. There's the barren and there's the fruitful. The Lord kills and He brings to life. There's the contrast between the rich and the poor. All right? There's a place of honor. There's a place of dishonor. And as we look through these these contrasts, three of them seem to stand out and become themes throughout the rest of this book and into the New Testament as well. And the first theme that we should remember from this prayer is that the barren become fruitful. The barren become fruitful. Though Hannah was literally barren, right? The term of barren, or the idea of barrenness, becomes a metaphor for hopelessness or desperation. And time and again, we see through the page of Scripture that God gives hope to those who are desperate, and those who are without hope. The next theme that we see um, played out in this passage is the humble are exalted. And as the Lord um, establishes the kingdom of David, he is going to raise up those who are his faithful servants. And the Lord will also remove and he will also cast down those who arrogantly stand against his purposes. The third theme that we'll see played out through this book is the weak are protected and given strength. We even see in the book of James, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And time and again through this book, we will see that God rescues the weak and he gives strength to those who are helpless. And though, as we will see through the book of Samuel, uh, the journey to the tra- and the transition to the monarchy was not a smooth one, but it was the Lord who was faithful to his people. As we consider now verse 10, we see that the Lord will humble the arrogant who stand against his people. And as we look at verse 10, let me just read it for you. It says, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces, and against them he will thunder in the heavens. He goes on to say, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. And as we look at the end of this verse, we see exactly how the Lord will do his judging that's been presented in this chapter. He is going to give strength to his king and he's going to give power to his, and he's going to exalt his anointed 
one. And so here, for the first time, Hannah introduces the idea of an anointed king. And in a few chapters from now, Samuel will anoint the first king of Israel. And then in a few more chapters, he's going to anoint David. And though the observation of both of these kings and successive kings, one quickly realizes that these human rulers are only foreshadows. They're only pictures of the ultimate king. You probably remember from our talk last week, I think we talked about this last week, the term anointed, if you look at the Hebrew, the term is the Messiah. And the Greek term for this anointed um, is translated the Christ. And so while the first anointed kings were Saul and, and David, and both reigned in Israel, this term is now applied to one who will rule and judge the ends of the earth. The anointed one will judge the ends of of the earth. The anointed one will be given strength and the wisdom of God, the God of knowledge. And as Adam read earlier, he, he alluded to Mary's song in the Magnificat, right? If you, and if you briefly want to turn to Luke chapter 1, we can we'll briefly look here. But in Luke chapter 1, Mary reflects these themes of Hannah's prayer as well. And if you look at Mary's um, quote, as, as we get to her Magnificat, it starts in verse 47 of chapter 1. And as, as Mary uh, begins to speak, she says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in the God my Savior, for he has looked upon my humble estate of his Servant, And you'll see right there, Mary is quoting directly from chapter 1 of Samuel. And she reflects on how in the future all generations will call her blessed. Once again, this is quite a reversal from her humble beginnings. Right? Mary then continues to reflect as she talks about how God will protect the weak and protect the poor by frustrating the plans of the mighty. And if you look at the, again at the first line, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. We, if we look back, we need to see and refresh our minds as to what, what she is considering. And if you remember back to Gabriel, when he introduces what is going to happen to her, if we turn back and look at verse 32, we'll see this. As, as Gabriel comes to Mary, he says, do not be afraid. And then Verse 32 says this, he, this is referring to her son, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him, that is Mary's son, the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Mary magnifies the Lord. Her soul rejoices because because the Lord is bringing about his anointed one. He is bringing about the culmination of those promises in the Old Testament. And the one who will sit on the throne of David to judge the nations, the great high priest and the mighty king will come through her. Well, with those truths in our mind, let's, let's turn back to Samuel and look at the second section. So the first section, we talked about the picture of God and in chapter 2, 11 through 26, we'll see the provision of God. The other day, um, one of my boys came to me and says, Hey, Dad, can I spend the night at a friend's house? And I replied, No. That's, that's my standard answer when they ask me something. I always say no first. Um, so I said no, and then just went back, on to, back to reading. And my son, not to be deterred by my first no, said, Hey, Dad. I'm like, Yes, son. He's like, so, okay, you didn't even ask me whose house I was going to go to. And I said, the answer is still no. And he said, but dad. And then he told me, he's like, I want to stay the night at so-and-so's house. And I, oh, well, why didn't you say so? That's fine. Have fun. Right? But then he's like, well, dad, what if I had said so-and-so's house? I'm like, oh, absolutely not. And you could see like kind of like this mischievous grin come across his face. As he, kind of, he was thinking like, why yes, why no? But you remember, as, as parents, it's our responsibility to protect our children from the influences around them. And as parents, we often know that, that sometimes we're, we want our children to stay at someone's house as long as possible because the influences are fantastic, right? 
And other times we're like, yeah, maybe no. Maybe not, not just yet. Well, as we get into chapter 2, verse 11, it says this. As, and now we remember that Hannah is bringing her son to the, the, the tent of meeting, to the, the temple. And, and in verse 11 it says, And Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord, or the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. So you can see now Hannah and her husband are dropping off their son at the temple to, to live and serve there. Now, no doubt Hannah knows what kind of things are going on in the temple. And yet her faith is in God that God will provide and protect her son in the midst of what's happening here. It's, we have a good indication of what's going on. It says, verse 11, and, Eli, or, and, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. So it sounds like things are starting off well, but we look at verse 12. It says, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. And the story takes a disappointing turn. These worthless men, the sons of Belial, uh, characterizes a person who is an idolater, someone who is sexually immoral, someone who is full of wickedness. And you must, you must appreciate the irony in chapter 1. You remember when Hannah was praying fervently to the Lord in the temple? Eli sees her praying. He sees her, her lips moving, but he doesn't hear what she's saying. And so uh, Eli accused her of being a worthless woman. It's the same term here. You remember Hannah was quickly offended and corrected him, saying, no, no, I'm not worthless. I'm, I'm actually praying my soul out to the Lord. And you mu- must wonder at the sorry state of worship in Israel if the priest's job was to kick out the worthless people out of the temple. But if them being worthless wasn't bad enough, it's the, the author states, the sons of Eli did not know the Lord. So now Hannah's son, left here in the presence of these faithless, worthless men, is left to grow. Now, the the narrator continues on. He talks about how the priests engaged with the people. And and it says, if you remember back through the books of Leviticus and Numbers, they describe how the Lord takes care of the priests. Right? Because they're, they're full-time service, the priests were allowed to take a portion of some of the offerings that were presented to the Lord. The size of the portion and the type depended on the offering that was being offered. Oftentimes, uh, it was the, the right thigh or the breast of the animal that was being sacrificed. But even the priests, as they took a por- it was a portion of the animal, it was after God had been given his first fruits. Right? And then even the priests, as they received that sacrifice, that offering um, that meat, their job was to offer some back to the Lord as well. Well, Hophni and Phinehas soon realized that they could demand more than their fair share. And in fact, they, they soon began not just taking um, the, uh, what was supposed to give to them, but they would send their ministers around with the, with the forks and dig out meat out of the different pots, and it was basically a potluck for them, Right? And soon, that, when that wasn't enough, they were demanding the choicest part of the meat. They were demanding the fat, which was reserved for offering to the Lord. And as they failed in their primary of task as a priest, their job was to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people to God. The people then came to the temple and they were extorted. And the people of Israel began to treat the sacrifices of the Lord with contempt. Instead of going with joy to offer a sacrifice to celebrate a great harvest or the birth of the child, there was fear and dread of going to the temple. Because if you didn't give the priest what they wanted, they would take it by force. They were extorting and threatening the worshipers. Imagine going to the temple to bring a sacrifice for a sin offering, to atone for sin and to bring reconciliation between you and God. And instead of the priest being the go-between between you and God, taking your sacrifice and offering it to the Lord, the priest demands portions, the portions that you had given to the Lord. Their actions were hindering the worship of the people. And instead of bringing people to the Lord, 
they were driving them away. Verse 18 continues uh, with the refrain that, was, that began in, in verse 11. It says, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. It's a stark contrast. Samuel is ministering before the Lord. He's, he's just a boy, but he's also he's wearing the priestly garments. And though he's so young, his apparel suggests that he is doing the work of a priest. Though his age isn't stated, his mother visits him every year, and you can see that she brings him a little robe every year. You can imagine how Hannah must have prayed over that robe as she was weaving it and stitching it together. You can imagine that she would make it a little bit long in the sleeves and a little bit long in the hem, you know, because she was planning her son was going to grow a little bit that year. And you can picture picture Hannah's joy as she's reunited with her son just for a few days. And then you can also see her restrained sorrow as she must say goodbye to her child again for another year. The author doesn't need to give too much commentary. The picture is enough. The reader seeing that the reader calling Eli's sons worthless almost seems to be an understatement. They're in a position of power, abusing the people of God. But in contrast, Samuel is ministering faithfully before the Lord, wearing the proper attire. The ephod mentioned here is often part, it's described as part of the, the priestly garments and, and it's usually made out of linen. And, and one of the parts of the garment I find particularly worth noting was that there, there are two stones, one on each shoulder. They're fastened to the shoulder. And on each stone was the, the name of six tribes. Six tribes on one shoulder, six tribes on the other. So as the priest ministered before the Lord, the, they were doing so, they were bringing the names of the tribes before the Lord. But as, and as Elkanah and Hannah came to visit their son, they came year by year. It's interesting that every year, it says, verse 20, Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, and, and he would say, May the Lord give you children by this woman, for the petition she asked of the Lord, and they would go home. And you can see here in this verse that also it says, Over the years, Hannah had three more sons and two daughters, and so the Lord blessed her and blessed her sacrifice. In verse 22, the the author uses now to pivot the the narrative back to Eli. Now, Eli was continuing to hear the reports of what his sons were doing to all Israel. Because of the persistent reports and their serious nature, Eli is forced to confront his sons. Not only were they taking the daily and disparaging the daily sacrifices, but they were also engaged in sexual sin with the women who were serving at the tent of meeting. Tabernacle that served as a place of worship, Israelite worship since they left Egypt, has taken on some permanent features here. And, and the narrator even uses the term temple to refer to this place of worship. And, but oftentimes, this is probably this is the tent of Moses. The tent of meeting is, is referred to as the tent of Moses. And this was a place where the priest would offer sacrifices, where the ephod and offering incense. Now, if you remember, Back to your, your days in Sunday school over in the buildings over there, you have the picture of the tabernacle, right? And, and as you remember, the, the tent was divided into two sections. And the tent of meeting was, was a, a tent that had two rooms in it. The first room uh, that, that the priest encountered when you would walk in was called the holy place, and it took up two-thirds of the tent. And as the priest walked in on the right-hand side, uh, would be uh, the, the table of showbread, where bread was kept every day for the Lord. And then on the left-hand side, you would see the menorah, the candle with its seven wicks. And then in the middle, straight ahead, there would be the altar of incense. And behind the entrance, or behind the altar of incense, would be the entrance into the Holy of Holies, that perfect cube that contained only the Ark of the Covenant. And as you remember, as the priests would go in, their job was to offer incense on the altar. And so from that altar of incense, smoke was constantly rising. 
And that smoke rising from the altar came to symbolize the prayers of God's people ascending before the Lord. In the tabernacle, you remember, incense could only be offered by the priests who served as mediators between the people and God. And symbolically, they were bringing their prayers into the presence of the Most High. You can see this idea expressed in Psalm 141, verse 2, when David prays to the Lord, let my prayer be set before you as incense. Now, instead of using the tent of meeting for the worship of God by completing their priestly duties, Hophni and Phinehas were using the tent of meeting as a place to engage in their shameful sexual sin. And as as Eli questions his sons, they refuse to listen to his warning. He's, He's... He's clearly old, and whether he's unable or unwilling or both, he doesn't put a stop to their actions. He simply leaves them with the ominous warning, if someone sins against God, who can intercede for him? The narrator at this point inserts the commentary into the text that the reason that these two, Hophni and Phinehas, did not repent was that the Lord had determined to punish them for their blatant Wickedness. Hophni and Phinehas loved their sin more than they loved God. They loved their appetites more than they had an appetite for God. And they did not know the Lord. And this place of worship was a way to indulge their appetites. One commentator writes that Hophni and Phinehas experienced the fate of men who deliberately sin against, oh well, that nothing will induce them to fight against them. They were so hardened that repentance became impossible. And thus it was necessary to undergo the full retribution of their wickedness. End quote. They loved the world. They loved their sin. They loved the things of the world. They did not care that the Lord is a judge, for they loved to indulge their wickedness. And they bear the responsibility for their own choices before the Lord. And the Lord gave them over to their sin as a judicial hardening in the same way that the Lord, after Pharaoh refused to let God's people go and refuse and refuse and harden his heart, finally the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Exodus 10.1 says this, The Lord says to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs among them. In the same way, the Lord is going to use the punishment of Hophni and Phinehas as a sign of what he is about to do, a sign of the deliverance he is about to bring to the people of Israel. Verse 26 ends this section on a hopeful note. It says this, Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Even though he was surrounded by wickedness, the Lord was able to preserve and protect little tiny Samuel from the evil around him. Samuel faithfully, in his little robe and ephod, continued to minister before the Lord. And not only does he grow physically, but he also grows in the favor of God. And not only that, he grows in favor with the people around him. And you might, you might think, well, that's, that's obvious. If he loves God, he's going to love the people around him. And, and you can see the same parallels in Luke chapter 2 when Jesus goes to the temple. You can turn there if you want. We'll be there just briefly. But in, in, ver, in Luke chapter 2, verse 40, when, when Jesus first uh, leaves the temple, it says this of, of Jesus. It says, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom and in the favor of God. And in Luke 2, the story continues after verse 40. Luke then inserts the story of how after a feast in Jerusalem, Jesus stays in the temple and his family leaves to go back to Nazareth. You remember this story, right? In verse 46, it says this. 
After the day, after three days, so Mary and Joseph leave to go back home. They assume that Jesus is with them someplace in their caravan. They leave to go home, and it says, and, they, and after a day's journey, they realize Jesus wasn't with them. It says this, verse 46, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said, Son, why have you treated us like this? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you and in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And verse 52 says this, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. These two boys began their ministry in the right way. They loved God and they grew in his presence. And they loved people and they grew in their relationships. And when Jesus was asked in Matthew 22, what is the greatest commandment of all? He says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. What a beautiful picture of the Lord raising up his people. Well, as we consider, let's consider the next section, Samuel 2, 26 through 36. And here we see the promises of God. And so as we see that Eli has been growing and, and maturing in the temple and in his work there, Verse 27, and there came from a man of God to Eli and said to him. And in this final section, uh, Eli receives a visit from a man of God who announces the Lord's imminent judgment on Eli and his house. The oracle starts in traditional fashion where it gives a judgment. It, gives a, or it starts with an indictment, excuse me, starts with an indictment, gives a judgment, gives a sign, and then gives hope for the future. Verses 26 through 29, the prophet in his indictment reminds Eli of the favored position that the family has enjoyed all the way back to Aaron in Egypt. He outlines the the tasks that they're supposed to fulfill. He says they're to offer sacrifices on the altar. They're supposed to burn incense and they're supposed to wear the ephod before the Lord. They were asked to carry out work, but the Lord clearly provided a way for them, for their physical needs to be met through the sacrifices. They were to eat there. But despite the generous grace of the Lord, Eli and his sons scorned the offering of the Lord and made themselves fat on the choicest parts of every offering from the people of Israel. And we'll see later the description, the physical description of Eli was he was a gigantic man. And the indictment is swiftly delivered in three questions. The sentence of judgment is delivered in verses 30 through 33. Eli's house is going to be cut off and every man killed except for one. That one would be simply spared to weep. But in the end, he would be removed from service. And for those of you who like to skip ahead and know how this is fulfilled, Saul actually fulfills this prophecy when he has Doeg, the Edomite. Remember, Saul is looking for, for David and he goes to the temple, and he said, asks where he was. They don't say any. They don't tell where he was. They had, they had given David some, of the, some resources that he needed. And so Saul says, Doeg, kill all these guys. And, and, and Saul has Doeg the Edomite kill all of the priests in 1 Samuel 22. The end, is, is, the end of this prophecy is culminated in chapter 1 of 1 Kings 2, which reads, the one man who did escape, Abiathar, says this, So Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest before the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. And so these are quickly fulfilled, these prophecies. And in verse uh, verse 34, God gives a sign to Eli. 
and here, this, here the sign is, is that Hophni and Phinehas will die on the same day as a sign that this is a sure thing. But he does bring hope in verses 35 and 36. In verse 36, all hope is not lost for Abiathar and his de- descendants. Notice there will be a place for them in the priesthood where they may work for a morsel of bread. Those who were full of bread now have to hire themselves out for a piece of bread. But if you'll notice in verse 35, there's also another promise, another hope. And though Israel might suffer under the degenerate leadership of unfaithful priests, they will soon be judged by one who has all knowledge. And as the Lord raises up a faithful priest, notice what he says here in verse 35. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do all according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house. And as we think of this, we we can't help but think of, of Hannah's prayer. As she talks about the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken. Against them, the Lord will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth and he will give strength to his king. And so here in verse 35, we have the promise of a faithful priest, the promise of the anointed one who will be exalted. Well, as we've looked at uh, that chapter briefly, I know we could probably spend a month of Sundays examining and, and fleshing out even more. But let me close here with just a bit of application for us as we conclude. Looking at this passage from Hannah's prayer, she tells us in the beginning that God's knowledge of you is complete. He doesn't just see the outside of us. He doesn't just look and see what we want people to see. But he knows the real you. He understands what motivates you. He understands, he knows what you are thinking. He knows in what you delight. He knows your joy. He knows what you're afraid of. He looks on your actions and he discerns the intents and thoughts of your heart. And also tells us that God's judgment is imminent. Because he knows us so thoroughly and because he is so holy, he must punish the wicked. And because we have all sinned and we have turned the people around us from God, we were born in sin and we continue in sin, and the judgment of sin is imminent. And we will be held accountable for every thought, every word, and every deed. And as we think of this truth, we we must think of the question Eli asked, who will intercede on our behalf? And the answer to that question this morning is that Jesus Christ did intercede. For those of you who don't know, Jesus was born a man. He lived a perfect life and then he suffered a cruel death. He died so that all might turn to him in faith. He took our judgment for our sins so that we might have his righteousness. For those of you who have this morning who have not yet trusted in Christ as your Savior, we encourage you today, turn to him in faith. He is a great and wonderful Savior. And for those of you who do know Jesus, let me encourage you this morning as well to press on in the faith because of the work that Jesus has done and is doing for you. As we look this morning, we've seen some examples of some bad priests. But Jesus is the ultimate and perfect high priest. And as Jesus sacrificed himself for you on the cross, he offered himself as a complete and final sacrifice. No more were the daily sacrifices needed. He was the perfect sacrifice without blemish. He was the ultimate. There is no more needed. And we know that the Father has accepted his sacrifice. You remember the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The Father validated the sacrificial work of Christ. 
But not only does Christ offer a sacrifice for you, he offers himself for you, but Jesus also mediates on your behalf. Hebrews tells us that we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone, a forerunner on our behalf, a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And when the high priest, as you remember, entered the Holy of Holies, he had the names of the 12 tribes on his shoulders. But when Jesus Christ entered into the Holy of Holies, he had the names of his people engraved on the palms of his hands. And as he holds out his hands to the Father, the Father will give him whatever he asks for. And because the anointed one knows you completely, he knows how best to conform you into his image. And it's in his wise plan. It's, it's that plan that, that feeds us with hunger, that nurtures us with trials, that enriches us with poverty, and strengthens with weakness, so that we might love him more than anything else in this world. And she is also continuing the work of a high priest. He also intercedes on your behalf. And to this end, Christ Jesus, the high priest, ever lives to make intercession for you so that you might understand what it means to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Jesus became human so that he might sympathize with our weakness and our frailty, so that he might intercede for us on on our behalf at the throne of his Father. Like the incense that filled the temple, his prayers for us are before his Father constantly. He calls us by name so that we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And as the Scottish Presbyterian Robert Murray McShane once famously said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for you. So I ask you this morning, who will intercede on your behalf? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are great and you are glorious. You know the beginning and you know the end. Father, we ask that you continue to strengthen us, cause us to walk in your ways, that we might honor you in your name. Amen.